hello, hello, hello. Back for another week of the NBN Weekly Recap Podcast. I'm James Crisofoli. And I'm Cameron Peters, an NBN Politics Reporter. Um, and yeah, so uh, sorry that we're getting to you a bit late this weekend, uh, the long holiday weekend, but uh, trying to pack in all the news from the week. So uh, let's get started. First off, big news from England this week. Um, Prime Minister Theresa May announcing that she will resign on June 7th um, as head of the party um, and as prime minister. Um, she will return to be uh, being a member of parliament after that, after that date, um, but she will no longer be leading the country through Brexit. Um, and the Brexit deadline, just to remind you, has been delayed till October, um, so they will need to find a new prime minister to um, negotiate that. Uh, she gave a very emotional speech this week. She started to tear up in front of um, her home, and uh, she received a lot of compliments, even from you know uh, far uh, kind of her her biggest rivals, Boris Johnson. They were treating they were tweeting nice things about her, but um, a lot of the me- media coverage has been very negative, just about her legacy and about how she has had. A, uh, many chances to resign before this and her, her withdrawal agreements for her Brexit deals have been presented three separate times and, and have been rejected. She barely survived the no confidence vote. Um, so a lot of people are saying this has been a long time coming. Um, but there's a lot of concern also over her successor. It looks right now like the most likely candidate or at least the person leading um, in polling and things like that is Boris Johnson. Um which is also a little bit scary. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're going to see in, in June um, there's going to be a, an election um, within the members of parliament um, to see who's going to be the new prime minister, um, and it'll likely be a more hardline, no-deal Brexit type of candidate. So um, that's, I don't know, that entails yes. a, lot of, a lot more uncertainty for the future of Brexit. Absolutely, yeah. Things are in a weird place in UK politics right now because um, the Conservative Party, Theresa May's party, has been losing ground both to the further right Brexit Party under um, Nigel Farage and to the uh, Labour Party under German, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy, yes. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so they're not in a strong position, and even less so because they're probably facing a pretty protracted period of infighting. They have quite the field of potential candidates right now, mm-hmm. which are going to have to get whittled down to two, which will then go to a, a vote. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, and, and May's new agreement that she was working on right now includes a clause for a possible second referendum that would be vo- voted on in Parliament, but that was seen as not really feasible because it would never get through Parliament with the Conservative majority. So... Uh, yeah, really not many options. Doesn't seem like anyone's willing to compromise other than May, and now she's going leaving. So um, it, it looks like the most likely option would, would be a no-deal uh, Brexit, especially given some of the candidates. So, um, yeah, we've got a few months for that to all unfold, but um, a lot of turmoil right now in, in the country and in the parliament. Um, so moving on... Uh, um, to a different election, uh, Narendra Modi in India just won um, uh, his re-election as prime minister this week. Um, he is part of the BJP party, which um, is, as opposed to the Indian National Congress, the BJP party is seen as a more Hindu nationalist kind of 
religious, um, religiously motivated party, whereas the Indian National Congress is more Congress has been seen as more moderate. They've been in power for a long time in India, but BJP has recently gained a lot of ground. They won over half the seats in parliament. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of people are seeing this as kind of a um, a referendum on Hindu um, sentiments yeah, and Hindu sort of yeah Hindu nationalism and um, anti-Pakistan sentiments and uh, you know uh, Modi just a few months ago in February um, ordered or there's that conflict in Kashmir yeah. with Pakistan and he um, was kind of pa- painted himself as strong and, and tough on Pakistan in that encounter and I think that kind of helped give him some momentum, but also we've just in general been seeing a rise in um, Hindu uh, extremism and and violence against Muslims within India by um, Hindus, and so this kind of religious um, valence is, is on high is on high right now, um, and so that's why Modi kind of used that in his campaign, and, you, and his campaign was a lot about be, becoming a more Hindu-centric country and then gov- government. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit frightening. I mean, India is an erstwhile secular country, but as James said, Hindu nationalism has been on the rise, especially with tensions at the um, the very vaguely defined border with Pakistan in mm-hmm. Kashmir. Um, so that is, those are two nuclear-armed states. Um, tensions are lower now than they were a few months ago, but that's a very, very tense situation, which is not likely to get better now with Modi back in control with the majority. So keep mm-hmm. an eye on that. Yeah, and there's also an anti-establishment element to it, I think, too, because a lot of the uh, kind of very well-known dynastic names in India who have been families that have been in politics for generations have uh, just in this recent election got ousted and um, new uh, insurgent politicians won. So there's a little bit of that same element that we've been seeing throughout Europe as well of, of sort of the anti-establishment um, uh, sentiment. So. Um, yeah, next story is, um, I think you probably know a bit more about this, the Julian Assange indictment. You want to yeah, say more so, about that? Um, so the short of it is Julian Assange, who's responsible for WikiLeaks, um, leaks of a whole bunch of State Department cables and other really sensitive intelligence, was charged um, under the Espionage Act on several counts. So the Espionage Act is a really old, really vague law that dates to, I think, 1917, so... We were in World War One. There were a lot of people um, uh, pressure to crack down on the press and uh, keep military secrets safe. Um, so the short of it is that under this very vague, nebulous statute, the Espionage Act um, from early 20th century, still on the books though, Julian Assange has been charged with 18 counts of publishing secret documents um, in conspiracy with Chelsea Manning. And now Chelsea Manning is a whole another story, <laughs> but in the context of Assange and these charges, the real the real story is press freedom. Mm-hmm. So Assange isn't a journalist, at least not in the traditional sense, but there's a lot of fear that um, prosecuting him it could also have a... Um, implications. Yeah, have for, really yeah. severe implications for the First Amendment mm-hmm. because journalists also publish classified information from uh, government sources. I mean, you look at like the Pentagon Papers case mm-hmm. way back... Um, which is considered a landmark press freedom case. Mm-hmm. So the worry is that uh, the precedent set by charging Assange could also be used to charge legitimate journalists in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yeah, and the Espionage Act has traditionally been used against um, military officials and get uh, and uh, um, indicting them when they release or leak classified information, and it hasn't really been used against 
journalists or press or even if that kind of word is term is fuzzy with Assange. Um, but yeah, so this would be this would be kind of breaking a lot of that precedent. Um, but there's the Justice Department is saying that Assange intentionally sought out classified information and published it knowing that it jeopardized the safety of U.S. military officials and not even military personnel, but just local contacts in Afghanistan and in Iraq, human rights um, advocates, people like that that were in these documents. And he published them, you know, obviously unredacted eventually. Um, so that's that's the Justice Department's argument for why that would be uh, the case. Yeah, and that's also the DOJ's argument for why this isn't a threat to press freedom. They're saying that Assange was, and he, well, he, Assange was highly irresponsible in publishing these, in not redacting anything or not working with the State Department to figure out what was safe to publish or not. Um, so they're arguing that this will not impinge on journalistic press freedom mm-hmm. because uh, a, a true journalist or a journalist. Um, uh, a reputable publication would take more steps to be mm-hmm. conscientious about what they publish, but still, um, a lot of press freedom advocates are worried about the precedent this is setting. Yes, yeah, it is concerning. And just uh, to mention also, Assange also is being charged in by in London or by by, uh, in, by the British uh, for violating uh, bail, I believe, or no, yeah, violating bail. Um, and then also in Sweden, uh, he's facing rape allegations. So he's um, multiple jurisdictions are competing for rights to jail uh, and try Assange. So just to mention that as well. Yeah. Um, All right. On to Trump, what he's been up to this week. He visited uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe in Japan. Um, And this can just be a brief brief, uh, story, but basically just they had some conversations about trade and about about Iran and North Korea. Um, And so essentially... Trump and uh, Abe were getting into kind of arguments about tariffs and trade with Japan. J- um, Japan deals a lot of or trades a lot of automobiles to the U.S. Um, and President Trump was saying that he would slap tariffs on those if the Abe doesn't renegotiate trade uh, in the in the coming months um, with the U.S. Uh, but Abe was arguing that. Um, Basically, Japan produces more cars within the United States than they uh, export to them, So, um, and that's provided investment and, and a boost to the U.S. economy. So there's been a back and forth about that. Um, as far as North Korea, Japan uh, obviously is in the region and feels threatened, but President Trump has claimed that the short-range tests that North Korea has been engaging in um, are not do not pose a threat, so he was trying to convince Abe of that. And, and then, sorry. It's and, worth noting those, that not only breaks with the e Japanese um, perception of these tests, so Japan feels threatened, but uh, the U.S. and ambassador, or um, not ambassador, formerly U.N. ambassador, now U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton, said they do violate uh, U.N. regulations. So Trump is alone, both in the U.S. and in Japan, in saying these tests are mundane, nothing to worry about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then as well as Iran, uh, Japan has been sort of an ally, or at least more friendly than the U.S., uh, with Iran, and um, they are still part of the Iran deal. So uh, there's been reports that officials in Tehran are asking Japan to be a mediator with the U.S. and to negotiate, um, help them negotiate and reach some sort of agreement and deal. So Japan is definitely um, an important ally, and uh, Trump. it's important that Trump is going there and talking with Abe, but um, some of the discussions, I think, were hitting a little bit of an impasse. Yeah, absolutely. That about sums it up. All right. Um, next, uh, 
briefly covering the uh, French um, supposed terrorist attack, but all we know, we don't know for sure yet. I think all, all we know is that there was um, a bombing uh, that injured 13 people in Lyon, um, and four people were arrested this week, I think today. Um, one of them was an IT student um, in in France, um, and uh, basically they used video surveillance footage to find um, him. But the bombings took place on Friday, and 13 were injured. As I said, no one was killed, and it doesn't look like anyone will, will it was fatally injured. Um, but yeah, this is just um, another saga in the, the Fr- France has been having to deal with uh, these terrorist attacks on a much higher scale in recent years. It also came on Friday after the Thursday was the beginning of the European parliamentary elections, so I think tensions are also on high because of that. Um, so yeah, I, I see it as more kind of representative of that of in, internal strife in France. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in terms of the terrorist attacks we've been seeing in Europe lately, this isn't a huge attack. There were no deaths, but it's still just a another kind of bullet point in this continuing trend in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, disturbing. Um, finally, uh, Pope Francis this week um, gave a speech in Italy uh, and mentioned abortion, uh, or it was about abortion, and um, he essentially took the, you know, Catholic stance of being against all abortion. I I don't, he he went even further, though, I think, um, and basically said um, that no matter what, that abortion should not happen, and that even if it looks like the fetus is not viable or if the health of the mother is in danger basically that it's it's impermissible to um get an abortion and the the big news story was that he likened it to contracting a hitman to solve a problem um so i mean nothing too surprising here it's the it's the catholic line on abortion i mean not not that it's a hit like a contracting a hitman but that it's um impermissible so um but it's just a reminder that though Pope Francis has been a lot like much much more liberal on a lot of issues, and he's even um, made it more made it easier. Not that this means a lot, but made it easier to absolve abortion as a sin, and he's been more sympathetic towards abortion. But um, this just reminds us that he's that he's still part of this Catholic institution, and, and um, that that has that stance on abortion. I, I don't know if I have anything more to say on that. Yeah. That about sums it up. Um. Uh, and then, yeah, the last thing I wanted to talk about was um, the European parliamentary elections this week, just in a little more detail. Did you want to talk about that, Cameron? Yeah, so uh, parliamentary elections in Europe just happened, um, and in in light of a lot of uh, instability and chaos in Europe right now in the UK, which is still participating in the parliamentary elections despite their declared intent to leave in mm-hmm. a few months, um, in yeah, in France, which has been racked by the yellow yellow vest protests, mm-hmm. um, lots of uncertainty right now. But the the gist of it was um, the center, um, both sides of the center, center left and center right, lost ground, and either end of the spectrum gained ground. Mm-hmm. So we didn't get the far right populist groundswell that some people were afraid of, mm-hmm. but they did gain ground. Um, the League in Italy, AFD, uh, Alternative for Deutschland in mm-hmm. Germany. Um, yeah, Marine Le Pen's party in France. Those parties gained ground, but on the flip side, so did further left parties, um, green parties in a lot of countries gained some seats. Which are basically all based on climate change and combating climate change. Yeah, um, so really mixed results. It's definitely going to destabilize the parliament, um, 
more now that we don't have a, a really effective center-left, center-right governing coalition. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's anyone's guess in what direction things are going to swing there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that coalition now will have to incorporate more more voices into uh, being able to govern with a majority. Um, and But yeah, so I mean, the, the concerning part is that France, Italy, and the UK all... Um, are now the majority of their um, representation is a far-right party. The UK with the Brexit party, France with Marine Le Pen's party, and Italy with the League. Um, but, yeah, as we said, uh, the, the, um, the even the, the far-left party in the UK gained ground, the Green parties have gained ground, so um, they will hopefully be able to be incorporated into the center, left-center-right coalition, and they'll still be a, a sort of pro-EU pro EU. A coalition that will lead the way, but yeah, we and and it, yeah, we we did see um, the rise in sort of the the extremes on both sides and the decline in the center, which I mean we've we've been seeing all over the world and it's happening in the U.S. and so not nothing too surprising, but it je- definitely um, a, a big change in how the EU will be run in the future. Any other stories this week that you wanted to talk about, Cameron? As always, lots. But I think that covers most of the the major bullet points. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, U.S. politics continues to be a dumpster fire. There's a lot oh, flying we, back and forth. And we actually didn't talk about, about another story uh, that we had slated the um, fake Pelosi video. Oh, Do you want to go over that? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, essentially, after Nancy Pelosi rebuked uh, Donald Trump earlier this week after he walked out of a meeting on infrastructure, um, so they clashed, and shortly after that. Um, Someone published a doctored video of Pelosi speaking that made her sound either drunk or otherwise impaired, so slurring, pausing at weird moments, stumbling. Um, And it was published on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, everywhere pretty widely. Um, Most of those places took it down relatively quickly, relatively being the keyword here. It's still not um, the response that should have happened, but Facebook is the big standout. Facebook has not taken down the video. Um, so this very obviously doctored video of the Speaker of the House, um, basically the most literal possible definition of fake news, um, they have left it up, um, and that in and of itself is kind of disturbing. It's also disturbing that the president retweeted it and pinned it, last I checked, to the top of his Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, didn't Facebook... Try, they've been trying to they took it down from a few accounts but it's not off the site at all not entirely that's as far as I, read, I, I believe I, I I won't say that's not correct as far as I know they haven't removed it yeah. at all the, instead they've the been, moral of the story is it's not off Facebook yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and but, that is um, <clears throat> arguably and I would argue a bad thing <laughs> um, Facebook likes to say they aren't a news outlet but they have a, I think, a responsibility as a curator of journalism and a platform for lots of journalism. Um, and as one of the, frighteningly enough, the biggest news sources in the U.S. Um, for many people to make sure that people are seeing stuff that is accurate, which this is in no way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and it was just reminding me of the whole Jim Acosta video scandal thing, too. So yeah. I mean, this has been a trend. And the the bigger moral for me also is the, the I don't know if you guys have heard of this, idea of the deep fakes um, yes. these videos that you can basically make it look like a, a, any uh, big public figure is saying anything you want through manipulated facial technology and, and kind of and, uh, I don't know how it works exactly but um, it's 
it's going to be a really big factor in the next few years, especially with the 2020 election. Um, so people have got to Facebook and companies like that and social media sites are, have got to really be on their toes and looking out for those types of things um, because they are getting really, the technology is getting really, really good. So it's kind of scary. Yeah, absolutely. If Facebook uh, reprises their position on this video with some more potentially damaging deep fakes, um, which the, the capacity to exist uh, or the capacity to create does exist, then that could have a really significant impact on the 2020 election. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. In a very disturbing way. Yeah. All right. On that high note, uh, thanks for listening this week. Uh, we'll be back, I believe, Thursday of this week will be our last recap of the quarter um, because we are not going to wait till Sunday because the cause NBN does not publish after that. So um, we'll be getting a, a kind of a kind of briefer, shorter week recap on Thursday. Um, and until then, see you.